Father, we're not doing this physically, but certainly in our hearts, we bow before you. We give you all the glory that is due you. We recognize you as the one unique God, the Almighty, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of Joseph, the one who led Moses to part the Red Sea and brought the plagues upon Egypt, the one who rescued the people from the Egyptians and will rescue us one day from this life of sin. Father, we thank you that we will have our bodies transformed and we have something to look forward to. And thank you that you have told us these things. But in the interim, I would ask, Lord, that you would help us to put into practice the things that are listed in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, that we would follow the precepts, the principles, the teachings that are listed there, that we might be your disciples and bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, since it's been a while since we have been in Matthew chapter 5, I just want to set the table again. Up to this point, the story of how God became man and how it all began is listed in the Gospel of Matthew. We had the birth of Jesus, his lineage, his ancestry, the announcement and recognition of his arrival with the Magi coming, the angels, and John the Baptist was the one who pointed to the Messiah at his baptism. And then the initiation of Jesus or his temptations that he went through. We've gone through all of this so far. Now we've also covered the place where he lived, which was in Capernaum, the northern section of the Sea of Galilee up there. And that's where he ministered. And then the selection of the disciples. We've been through that. The end of Matthew chapter 4. And the type and scope of his ministry. And now we are getting into one of five sermons in the Gospel of Matthew. Now if Jesus was here today and he was going to say something. He was going to instruct us. He would come in and he would sit down. And normally during that day and age, as I have previously mentioned, the rabbi would sit down and everybody else would stand. Uh, that's not so bad. You know, we could do something like that. But that's how the rabbis used to teach. And Jesus delivers these messages. And he delivers a total of five of them in the Gospel of Matthew. And from Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, that is called the Sermon on the Mount. It is parallel to Matthew chapter 6, which deals with the Sermon on the Plain. But if you look at Matthew chapter 6, it says, Jesus found a level place. That's why they call it the Sermon on the Plain. But all it really is, and it's the same message, but it's listened to by two different individuals, which means they wrote it down differently. Matthew here heard it firsthand. Luke probably got it from somebody else, maybe even from Paul, because Paul could have been there as well. We know that uh, Paul was a member of the Pharisees, and we don't know for sure if he was there, but certainly the Pharisees and the Sadducees were there and the scribes, and they were examining Jesus all the time to see if what he had to say was true, if it was right, if it was scriptural. And so we know that Luke would have gotten it secondhand, and he wrote things down. And now the way that it's written down, both in Matthew and in Luke, they're both unique. They have unique perspectives on there, but it is the same message. And so... Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, and it goes into the blesseds. If you go over to the Gospel of Luke, he words it a little bit differently. He has four blesseds, then he has four woes. 
And he continues with those woes down there. And so there's a little bit of setting the table, as I just said. There's a little bit of context that we need in order to understand what's going on. You have to know what it is that you're to expect when you come to the scriptures like this. And Jesus is going to be teaching. And so this one, this first one is the Sermon on the Mount. The next one goes to Matthew chapter 10. And in Matthew chapter 10, this is the one place where Jesus called the disciples to himself. And all these others that I'm going to mention, the disciples came to Jesus. But in this one, Jesus went to the disciples and he instructed them. And he told them what to do when you go out to minister, when you go out to give the gospel, when you go out to heal the sick, when you go out to cast out the demons. He brought his disciples before him. He said, this is what you're going to do. So the first message is Matthew chapter 5 through 7. The second message is Matthew chapter 10. It's like a message or a, a sermon on missions or uh, the Olivet Discourse. It's called the Discourse. He gave a discourse on missions. After that, In Matthew chapter 13, he goes into the kingdom parables. Now, the kingdom parables, I think most of us are familiar with some of those. You have the parable of the sower of the seed. You have the parable of the wheat and the tares. You you have several different parables that focus on the kingdom of God. Now, we went through those in the men's on Thursdays. We went through all the kingdom parables, and there are several that are listed in there. In total, Jesus speaks 46 parables when he starts teaching. And in Matthew chapter 5, he gives us the first one in Matthew chapter 5. It's not necessarily first in chronological order, but the first one that is mentioned there is the salt and the light. You are salt and you are light. And he's speaking in a parable there, and he wants to give some information, but he's kind of hiding the true meaning from those who really don't want to believe, who just want to be contentious. And so we have... The Matthew chapter 5 through 7, that is the Beatitudes. You have Matthew chapter 10, it is the discourse on missions. You have Matthew chapter 13, you have the commentary or the message or the sermon on the kingdom itself. Then it goes to Matthew chapter 18, and this is kind of life inside the church, the makeup of the church. You have, for instance, the little children there, for such is the kingdom of God. You also have what forgiveness is and what it is not. And forgiveness is talked about in Matthew chapter 5, and we'll connect those two uh, when we get to that point. And so he's telling people in the church, okay, this is how it's supposed to be. This is what you're supposed to be like. And he gives a message there. If you have a red-letter edition Bible, most of the section in there of Matthew chapter 18, it's all red. And in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, most of it's all read. And then when you get to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, he tells his disciples of the things that are going to come. That is also for us because there are things in that passage which are yet future. Not only in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, but Luke 21, Mark chapter 13, and in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 38, and in Zechariah, and all through the Old Testament, all these prophecies are given, and in the book of Daniel. You know, all of these things are very important to us, and Jesus, it's like he shows up and he goes, I want you to know these things. A lot of times the messages that are delivered today are, And I even asked somebody about this, and they said, you know, that's just the message that they gave the other day. And the message was how to get along in business. Now, do you think Jesus was teaching that? Okay, we're going to have a business seminar today. I'd like all of you business owners to show up, and I'm going to teach you how to get along in business. That scripture is not meant to teach us how to get along in business. The scripture is there 
to teach us about relationships, our relationship with God, the one that we don't have if we're unsaved, the the one that we do have if we're saved, the relationship we're supposed to have with each other because all else is going to go by the wayside. Businesses, they may happen inside the millennium, but they're not going to be part of our lives in the millennium as far as us working because guess what? The reason you work is to get food. You need food to live. Our new bodies don't need food. We're not going to have to do that in the millennial period. Now, will we sleep? I don't know if we'll sleep or not because we're going to have our glorified bodies at that time. We're going to be resurrected. It's all going to be good and strong and everything healthy. We're not going to have to worry about the ketone diet or anything like that at all. It's just going to be focused on doing the will of God. And so that's what lies ahead for us. So you have these five messages. And Jesus wants us to know this information because not only did Matthew put it down, but it's also scattered throughout the rest of the scriptures. Now, as I said previously, in four of these messages, the disciples came to Jesus. And one of them, he called them. He said, come here, I want to tell you something. Because he was preparing them for a very important mission that was to lie ahead. And and so this is a teachable moment, right? This is something that we want to look at and go, okay, why was it set up this way where Jesus came down and he would sit down and he would teach these guys because he wanted certainly to prepare them for what lied ahead, but they were his disciples. Now, if somebody says in our day and age, and I've mentioned this before as well, they, they may ask you, are you a Christian? And you would say, well, yes. Hopefully you can say, yes, I'm a Christian. And then if they said, are you a disciple? Well, that's a whole nother question, isn't it? Well, what is a disciple? For instance, in the New Testament church, the Christians were not called Christians until Antioch. That was Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 9, Do you know how they referred to themselves? We're followers of the way. Now, I've seen some churches and there have been cults that have called themselves the way. And that's how they referred to themselves. We're followers of the way. We're disciples of Jesus Christ. But they didn't call themselves Christians. The name Christian was given to them by others in Antioch. And two other times it's mentioned in Scripture. And one of them it's with, uh, I think, Herod Agrippa. You think so long or in short amount of time you can cause me to become a Christian? You know, so they were known as Christians at that time. But the disciple aspect of believing in Jesus, that's what he wants us to focus on. And so Jesus called the disciples once. The rest of the time, the disciples wanted to be with Jesus. And that brings us to kind of an application here in the middle of this text. Do you guys know what the WPA is in Pennsylvania? Maybe you might know. I've heard of it before. It's the Progressive Administration, excuse me, Works Progress Administration. And it started, it was founded in 1938, I believe was the year, 35, 1935 on May 6th. And they had all these public works type activities coming in. It was called WPA. Well, I'm going to give you one, WPI. Now, WPA is an acronym. But WPI is an acrostic. There's a difference between the two. WPI, you just line up W, P, and I. W is willing, P is present, and I is inquiry. Somebody who wants to be a disciple 
has these characteristics, just like the disciples who were here. The disciples were willing. When Jesus called them, what did they do? Remember Peter? He brought in all these fish and, okay, Lord, because you say so, I'll do this. I'll throw the net over here. You know, we've been fishing on day, and we pull the fish up. And, and when he did that, after Jesus told him, he had all these fish. And then Jesus said, ah, leave the hundreds of dollars there and come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And he goes, okay, we're out of here. And he left. Peter and Andrew left. Then James and John called him. Matthew, the tax collector, walked away from his booth. He just, I'm willing, send me. Now, if God comes to any one of us, are we willing to say, I'm willing, send me. Give me the words to speak and I will speak them. I am ready to do your will. These guys, there were more than uh, 12, but in chapter 5 of Luke, I believe it is, is where Jesus appointed the 12 and called them apostles right before you get to Luke chapter 6. And so certainly those 12 have a special place, but there were more than 12 as far as the disciples. Even after the resurrection, there were 120 in the upper room there that Jesus considered them to be the disciples. That's why they're mentioned inside scripture. And so there has to be a willingness, this willingness. God never forces us into salvation. You understand that, right? He doesn't come to us and say, you're going to be saved. Like there is a doctrine out there that irresistible grace, that you cannot resist the grace of God. If he calls you, you're going to be saved. Kicking and screaming, you're being drugged into the kingdom and you have no choice. God does not do that. Scripture does not teach that. I believe that that particular doctrine is an error. Well, he does the same thing with being a disciple. He doesn't come, an angry God, slap us upside the head. You've heard the sermons like uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. You're a sinner and you're going to be a disciple. Shape up and slaps us around a little bit. Come on, you're going to be a He doesn't do that. The Holy Spirit entreats us. He says, come on, you can do this. And he comes right alongside. He is the encourager. He is the instructor. He is the one that warns us of impending doom. He gives us the way out. All of those things is what the Holy Spirit does. And so if we're being a disciple, we are willing to listen to him. We say, okay, I'm going to do what you ask me to do. The believer in Christ will desire to grow. That's why the disciples were hanging out with Jesus. Jesus didn't have to ask them all the time to come to him. They said, okay, Jesus is over there. Let's go over there. As I said before, the Holy Spirit will entreat or implore the believer to move forward. He will not allow us to stagnate. Now, if that is the case, we are backsliding. If we resist that, it it brings itself out in the form of, you know, I have something else to do. What is more important in this life than the worship of God? Cutting the grass? No. Trimming the fingernails? No. Um, Taking a vacation? No. And we all do those things, right? We all do them. Well, what, you know, I'm, I'm a gardener, right? What if I said, I'm not going to church today. I got some weeds to pull, you know? What would you guys think of me? Like, don't you have any kind of priorities in your life? You know, what, what's going on with you here? But you don't understand. My weeds are like this tall. And, you know, you would say, 
And what's the deal with that? You would look at me and say, you're not very committed, are you? You think your weeds are more important than the willingness to be at the feet of Jesus? And so I'm not supposed to do anything like that. Now, there is also the way that this works out. If we have this desire and this desire is manifesting, this is what is known as the inner witness of the Spirit of God. Scripture talks about this inner witness in Romans chapter 8, verse 16. It says, God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are his children. In other words, he communicates with us. Now, we have to become adept in hearing his voice. Sometimes it's difficult. And it's not necessarily like, what? What'd you say? And you start carrying on a conversation like that. It's not quite like that. Now, if you're having those issues, we can talk afterwards. But it, usually it's not like that. Not that God can't speak like that. He can speak like that. But it's this idea that I think God wants me to do this. I think God is calling me to a deeper walk with him. I think God wants me to you know, go to the women's or go to the men's or do this particular work for God inside the church or even outside the church and be a witness for him. That is God's spirit working in us and we go, wow, God is moving me to do particular things or he's moving you to do particular things. And what you can do is look over your life, turn around and look where you've come from. If there hasn't been much change, chances are you don't have that inner witness of the spirit. If you're not moving on to maturity, now I believe believers can be believers and not be mature. That's in Hebrews. Book of Hebrews, a bunch of immature Christians that are there. And to remain in infancy is not good. God pushes us gently to become mature. The man or woman who is willing to grow in their faith is a believer. That is the inner spiritual witness. The man or woman who desires to do God's will will grow. They will gain knowledge. They will acquire wisdom. They will fellowship with other believers. And this individual has great assurance of their faith. The one who says, no, I'm preoccupied. I don't need to do that. I would say, take a check. God commands that we are supposed to examine ourselves through the Apostle Paul. He said, we're to examine ourselves to see if we're even in the faith. Are we a disciple like the apostles? I don't mean doing the miracles and everything, the signs and wonders that follow an apostle. I'm talking about just following him, going to church, going to fellowship, doing what he asked us to do. And those things do not get us saved. Those are results of being saved. I, I want to make sure that that's completely clear. There will be fruit that you produce if you're a believer. And these guys are believers. These guys are disciples. They want to sit at the feet of Jesus. Going on with this, the man or woman who has better things to do than to know God is more likely deceiving themselves concerning their salvation. Now, that's a very strong point. I just want to make sure no one misses it. That if we are not spending time with God, and this applies to me as well as you. If we're not spending that time, well, why should we think that we're even a disciple? And if we're not a disciple, are we a believer? And there's a debate about that. I'm not going to get into that. It's just this idea. God wants us to be very fruitful. So there's this willingness, this desire to be with Jesus. And there's this present, being in the presence of Jesus Christ. The disciples were where Jesus was, hung out with him. 
We don't hang out with the world and do what the world does day in and day out on the weekends. We are supposed to be in his presence. Like you guys are all here, and, and I know I'm preaching to the choir. You are all here for worship. You are all singing, and it's, it's great. It's wonderful. We are where Jesus is invited. Now, it's not like he has to show up because he's everywhere, right? But when we're here and we're giving him praise, he is in the midst of the praises of his people. And you were here in the presence of Jesus Christ. Now, you can't see him. You can't touch him. But he is here. And when we're in heaven, he'll say to you, hey, do you remember that one Sunday in May that you were there? And, and Pastor Bill talked about that. And you were there. And I received that praise. He's going to say to us, I received that praise. And it was all good. It was wonderful. You did your job. This is good. And you did it willingly. You weren't forced into it. Now, sing. He, nothing like that is going to come along. And so we get to do this voluntarily. So we want to be present with Jesus. And then thirdly, in all of these different sermons, except for the one that he delivered on missions, the disciples had questions. They walked up and said, I have a question. Now, they didn't say it quite like that, but they asked him. Maybe they did say it like that. Like, I have a question. You know, I imagine him like as Guido the Israeli fisherman. You know, he's probably big and husky and curly-headed. And, and uh, I have a question. And they would ask these questions. Like one of the questions that is asked is, why do you speak to the people in parables? Why do you do that? And he answered them. He gave them the answer. When you're in the Word, all kinds of questions come up. And then when you become aware of who God is and how the Holy Spirit is moving, you start going, wait a second. I need to know a little bit more about this. What What is taking place? For instance, in Matthew chapter 24, when you get to the Olivet Discourse, and we see that the disciples start to ask questions. Specifically, they said, tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of the coming, your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus said, every stone on the temple will be thrown down. They go, wow. When is this going to happen? You want to just enlighten us a little bit? You know, is this going to be like next week? When is that going to take place? Of course, we know that that took place on 70 AD. Titus came in, the Roman army, and they destroyed the temple. And so we should be constantly inquiring of the Lord because we are in his presence. We are learning from him. We're in fellowship. We're studying to show ourselves approved. All of these things. Now, for instance, I don't know how aware you guys are of what's taking place in the world. Is there a volcano erupting somewhere? (laughs) Alan and I were talking about that. Imagine these people complaining that they built their house on a volcano and now they're sobbing because their house is being destroyed. (laughs) I get that. And I understand they didn't think it would come their way. But uh, John, do you have that ready? You see this? Now, those are the active spewing volcanoes that are around the world right now. Those are the ones. But you know how many volcanoes are active? 1,500. Do you think the earth is moving a little bit? We only hear about Kilauea. These are the ones that are actively spewing off right now. And those are only the ones we know about. Those aren't the ones under the ocean. It could be double that. I mean, this earth is just churning. Well, but it's causing earthquakes up in Yellowstone. Have you noticed there have been a lot of earthquakes up in Yellowstone? And what do they call that? The super volcano. If it blows, the whole United States goes. You know, they've been talking about that. Well, did Jesus talk about this? Yes, as a matter of fact, he did. 
He talked about earthquakes in various places. He talked about wars and rumors of wars. Where did he say that? Matthew chapter 24, Luke chapter 21. That's where it's talked about. Well, when is that going to happen? When are these things going to come to pass? Do you want to know about that? Let me tell you a little bit more. Have you been following the news with Israel? Has anything big or exciting just happened in Israel? What was that? The embassy from the United States decided, well, President Trump decided to move it to Jerusalem. Do you think that's a big deal? Was it reported in the news as a big deal? Would it be a big deal if 100,000 Jews came out to thank President Trump in Israel? Did you hear about that? Maybe one or two of you did, but nobody else did. What did the rest of Europe say about this? For shame, for shame, for doing that. All of Europe is pretty much anti-Semitic. All of it. You wouldn't think so, but they are. Well, so what's going on with that? And there's these riots. And you, did you hear about the 53 terrorists that got killed? Well, no, maybe it was 53 or 63, but at, if it was 63, 53 of them were known terrorists that got killed in this uprising. The sharpshooters in Israel were so sharp, they took out 53 known terrorists as the Hamas was saying, get closer to the fence, we want you to go through the fence. And that woman who had the dead baby, did you see that? She had the dead baby and said, look what the Israelis did. They killed my baby. The baby died like a week before that because of a respiratory issue. But they're trying to come out saying, you know, this is not the case. Did you know that Egypt, they flew down the head of Hamas down to Egypt. And they said, you knock it off. You stop doing this. Did you hear about that? You didn't hear about that either. So guess what they did? They pulled all their tent pegs up and all the hospitals and mobile hospitals because they thought there'd be a lot of casualties. They pulled all that up and they moved it out because Egypt got in there and said, knock this stuff off. Do you know that Egypt is not going to be one of the players going against Israel in the end times? Did you know that? Did you know that Syria really is really not a country anymore? And ISIS came in there. And when ISIS came in there, guess who moved in when they got defeated by us? Russia and Iran. They're building military bases over there. Did Jesus talk about that? Well, as a matter of fact, he did talk about Russia and Iran. Have you guys been paying attention to the news, what has taken place over there? And right now, Benjamin Netanyahu, he just had a meeting with Putin. He said, we're coming in to Syria, and we're going to take out these ISIS guys, and we're going to take out Hamas and Hezbollah. Hamas, I think, is to the south. Hezbollah is to the north. That's causing all of these problems, and they are both supported by, guess who? Iran, which is Persia, which is listed in Ezekiel chapter 38. Do you have any questions yet about what's going on over there? I mean, you start seeing that taking place, and then the world economies and how that's all folding into it, and Putin is running out of cash. Have you seen that in the news? running out of cash. But guess what? Israel, when Mark Twain went to Israel and he saw it, he said the place is an utter desolate ruin. There is nothing here. There's not even small shrubbery plants growing. It's just all dirt, is what he said. You know what it is today? It is the richest country in the Middle East as far as exports are concerned. It is a lavish land, and that was prophesied that that would happen. God said he wanted the land to bud in preparation of his people to come, and it is budding all over the place over there. You go over there, and it is palatial. You go over to Haifa, and there are high-rises over there. You get up on the town. They have a nuclear power plant there. They found all kinds of gas, natural gas, right off the coast there, 
and they are supplied forever. They have water coming out their ears, so to speak. It used to be a dry and barren land, but they have built desalinization plants over there, and they have no fear of not having water. I wonder if California would ever do that. Now, we might hit it. We might harm a Garibaldi or something out there, but we're not going to do that. But they have done that. They have the highest high-tech companies all over there. And Scripture says that Russia and Iran and Sudan and Cush and Put and Gog and Magog and all of these countries are going to be involved in coming down to Israel. Russia and Iran are both lacking in funds right now. France just pulled out of a multi-billion dollar deal with Iran. Have you been listening to the news and seeing? You know, this is talked about in Scripture, not specifically, but Iran and Russia are both going to come down, according to Scripture, God's going to put hooks in their jaws and pull them down to what? He's going to do one specific thing that he has in mind. To take a spoil. To take a spoil means you have wealth. Israel has wealth. Gog and Magog, Putin, Russia, they are in Syria. Guess what's being flown to Syria on daily flights? Armaments, thousands and thousands of rockets and everything that's going over there. Did you know all that is in Scripture? Well, not specifically, but the plan. The plan is in Scripture. That's why the disciple of Jesus Christ would say, when is this going to happen? It is, oh man, I, I have my rapture tennis shoes on. I am ready to go because these are the things that are just lining up. But the m- news media will not tell you these things. And we need to keep up on this. And I can't wait to get to Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and start going through that. It is just incredible what is taking place throughout the world and how it is just culminating in this Israel and we got to keep our eyes on Israel. And he addresses Israel in the Gospel of Matthew. So this idea that we are willing, we are present, we are inquisitive, we are asking questions. Like, for instance, you know, we've had an average of one school shooting a week in 2018. Does anybody ever ask why? Some people say it's because there are guns. It's not because there are guns. It's because of the condition of the human being. That is why it's taken place. And I can tell you this, a lot of people are asking why, and a lot of people are believing the lie that it's the guns. It's not the guns. It is us. It is we who exist here. And so these questions that people ask, Scripture has the answers for this. Now, with these volcanoes and the earthquakes and the meteors that are going to hit, you know, they are getting more and more concerned about the meteors that are floating out there. They say there are thousands, and any one of them could hit us at any time. Book of Revelation says they will. There's going to be a couple of them that hit us on this earth. And so why would God want us to know that? Because he wants us to avoid the time of wrath, which is coming. And we're going to get into all of that. I don't want to get ahead of myself. So in the Sermon on the Mount, we also have these other topics, these subjects that come up from chapters 5 to chapter 7. We have the Beatitudes. We have the salt and light. We have Jesus, how he fulfilled the law. We have the issue of anger and murder, lust and adultery, divorce and remarriage, oaths, 
eye for an eye, love your enemies, give to the needy, how to pray, how to fast, treasures in heaven, do not worry, do not judge hypocritically, ask, seek, and knock, the narrow gate, false prophets, and the wise builder. All of these things rolled up in a ball, they are the manifesto of the kingdom. This is, this is the first message in the first gospel that Jesus wants us to know so we can model our lives after these things as disciples. Now, I listened to several messages on this. And there's one guy that said, well, you know, the, he thought the Catholic Church teaches if you just follow the Beatitudes, you'll be saved. That couldn't be more incorrect. That's not what gets you saved. The thing that gets any one of us saved is having faith in Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so that's not what the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's how we're to act. It's like if you go into the military. Don't they have a code of conduct in the military? And shouldn't you be familiar with it, especially if you're an officer, the code of conduct? Not that if you're a private, you don't need to know. Everybody needs to know the code of conduct. What are you supposed to act like if you are a soldier? Well, it's spelled out for you. Well, this is our code of conduct. It is spelled out for us. And the way Jesus delivers it, it's kind of cryptic. It's kind of paradoxical. I'm going to get a little ahead of myself here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Now, what does blessed mean? Blessed means, oh, to be envied. Oh, how happy. When somebody is blessed and you see them, what are they going to look like? Like they've been baptized in lemon juice? No. They're good. How are you? They're just going to be at the tip top of the feeling of goodness. They're just going to think, nothing is wrong in my life. Blessed am I, is what they'll say. And that's the word that Jesus is using. And specifically in the time of Jesus, if somebody used that for somebody else, it meant they had wealth. They had wealth and they are blessed. They would turn to somebody else and say, you are blessed. You know, somebody like Matthew. I don't like the guy, but he's blessed, you know, is what they would say. But the first statement out of Jesus when it comes to the beatitude is, blessed are the poor. In Luke, and blessed are the poor in spirit. These are antithetical to each other. The one who is rich and wealthy is blessed, and the one who is poor is blessed like the one who is rich and wealthy. And you go, go up to somebody who's homeless. You're so blessed. Yeah, you think so? No. They're not blessed over there, but that's what Jesus is saying. And so when Jesus would say that, the people would go, huh? What? What are you talking about? Blessed are those who mourn. Why? They will be comforted. Not right now. I'm not comforted right now. Well, he meant it to be now. When we mourn over a tragedy, which is there, and you know, one of the processes of losing somebody is you have to grieve. You have to go through that process. Some people, they truncate that. They don't want to grieve, and that is so unhealthy. And God built us to grieve. Even Jesus was grieved at the death of his friend Lazarus. He wept, it said. And so we we need to go through that same process. But he said, blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. Why? Because we have what's in mind in the future. And how God can minister to us in the midst of our fallenness. That's what he's talking about.
And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You know, and you you look at those and go, blessed like you're rich, but you're meek and you're lowly in spirit. Like, who is the most meek and humble guy in the Old Testament? Yes, I heard it. I heard somebody say it's Moses. Moses was the most meek and humble guy, and he was in charge of two or three million people. That's probably why he was making, hey, they got, you give me all these people, it's such a problem. You know, he, he probably was just pulling his hair out. I don't know what was going on with him, but he was the most meek man in the Old Testament, the most humble guy who was there. And so Jesus is using these opposites to bring understanding to the people. And as they listen to him, Scripture says they were astonished. I've never heard these things before, which should have been coming out of the leadership. That should have been coming from the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But they definitely made a distinction that it was not. And also, a few other things I want to add to this. There was the terrain, as I spoke about. If you go to Israel and you go to the area of Capernaum, and you see where Jesus conducted his ministry, I've mentioned before that, that you can walk to the synagogue that was there where Jesus read out of the Uh, Old Testament book of Isaiah and declared that his ministry was beginning and he rolled up the scroll and he gave it away and people were offended there. Today is this scripture fulfilled in your hearing and he taught. You can stand right in the synagogue where he was. Now the floor is basalt and they've put some marble over the top of that but you can see the foundation which is there and you can see the fishing village. And Jesus is there, he's ministering there, he calls the disciples from that area, and then if you look towards the north, it just kind of slopes up, and it keeps on sloping up, and winds can come down like a nor'easter, and they can churn up the water in the Sea of Galilee, and make it like you're on a nor'easter inside of Lake Michigan. It can be really bad, the seas can be six to ten foot, and it's not that big of a lake, it's smaller than Lake Tahoe, if you have seen that. And so Jesus is there, and he, he goes up this slope, after he sees the crowd now the crowds that are there and I'll probably expand on this a little more but the crowds that are there could have been anywhere from 20,000 to 100,000 people that would be there and he would start ministering to all those who would show up and he'd heal all the sick every single one that would come to him he would heal them and then he would sit down so when he saw the crowd he went up on the mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as this is all going on, you've got to relate it to Luke too. So he goes up to, on this mountainside and he finds a level place. If you go there today, you'll find an eight-sided church in the area that they think Jesus went and taught. It's kind of level there on this slope. And it was built by none other than Mussolini. Mussolini built the current church that is there in 1938. And that's where the Pope, he's been there and he's preached some messages there. And it could be that spot right there. We don't know exactly, but it is a little more level up there. And and it's up from the Sea of Galilee. And it has eight sides. Why does it have eight sides? Because there are eight Beatitudes. They do a lot of symbolism over there. And and so that's what you have. You have this eight-sided church, which is up there. And Jesus would have seen the crowds and he would have gone up to that level place and he would have sat down. And his disciples came to him and they probably sat down in front of him because the message that we have here, this first Sermon on the Mount, we probably don't have it in its entirety. But we have enough 
for us. And so they sat there, and guess who was behind all the disciples? Guess who would have come up closest to hear what was being said? It would have been the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they were judging his words. They wanted to know what was going on. And if you go back to Luke chapter 5 and you go into uh, at least one time, I think it's mentioned in Matthew chapter 4, you will see that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are there and they're listening to what he has to say and they're dissecting his words and they're starting to get a little upset. By the time you get to chapter 13, Jesus has lost his popularity. He's had his popularity from chapter 5 through chapter 12, and everybody's going, this is wonderful, the Messiah is here, everybody's getting healed, we're even getting fed. And they started following Jesus because he gave them some loaves of uh, bread and some fishes, and they thought, this is great, no more McDonald's for us, we're going straight to Jesus, and he's going to provide for us the food. And Jesus said, the only reason you're following me is because you want food. Why don't you follow me because it, God, the kingdom of God is here. And they were unwilling to do so. And remember, everybody started leaving at that point. And then the Pharisees and the Sadducees, because it started here with the Sermon on the Mount, especially as you go to Luke, it starts out with the four blesseds, then it goes into four woes. Who do you think the woes were directed to? They were directed, he's probably sitting right in front of the disciples. The disciples are right in front of him. And he probably looks up. And he's looking at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he goes, and woe to you who are rich now. And you could have seen them just go, what is he saying? You know, they, they would have said something in Hebrew, a little more descriptive probably, but they, they started to get up tight. Matter of fact, I should read just a little bit of this because you've got to set the table for what's going on here. Luke, if, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke, Chapter 6, I'm going to read not all the verses there, but several of them. And this is what Jesus is doing. Remember, he's sitting down. The disciples are in front of him. There are thousands of people beyond on this hill. And it's a hill where there could be thousands of people. And if they were up the hill, it would have been like a natural amphitheater right there. But in Luke chapter 6, 24, he says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Who were the rich people in Israel? It was the priests, it was the Pharisees, it was the Sadducees. They were the wealthy power brokers. And so they hear that, what are you talking about? And he goes, woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. How many of them do you think had had uh, quite a few falafels? Probably a lot of them. They were well fed you know, the, the ones who were wealthy. We know that in the Old Testament, Eli the priest, he was well overweight. And when he found out about his sons, he fell back, he broke his neck. And it was just a terrible thing for him. So the priesthood, they have this reputation of, you know, having too many falafels. Well, going on, woe to you who laugh now for you will mourn and weep. Of course, if you're well fed and you're rich and you throw parties, you're laughing, Right? Woe to you, verse 26, when men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. Oh, nobody would speak against the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests. Why? They had power to kick you out. That they would say, no more for you. 
no sufrió. You know, they would take you, they would shove you to the side and say, you are not allowed back in the temple. You are gone. You are considered accursed. You are considered anathema. Verse 27 says, but I tell you who hear me, and he's probably looking back at his disciples now, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other also. Do you think the priests were into striking people on the cheeks? We have somebody in scripture that that actually happened to. What was his name? Paul, the apostle. You whitewashed sepulcher. How dare you speak to the high priest like that? Oh, forgive me. I didn't know he was a high priest. You know, some people think that Paul really didn't know he was a high priest. He knew he was the high priest. Are you kidding? Paul, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew exactly who the high priest was. Oh, forgive me. I didn't know he was the high priest. I mean, just railing sarcasm and it back at you. You know, buddy, you slap me, you little, you know, I could just see him under his breath, little short guy, bald-headed, rickety. What was that guy's name on laughing? Artie Johnson, you know, you're always talking. I could just see the Apostle Paul being like that, just right back at you, buddy. Well, it goes on here, verse 28, bless, oh, I already read that, verse 32. It says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? He's probably looking at the Pharisees again. Even sinners love those who love them, and if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And I could see at this point, they're probably just boiling over. They're apoplectic. They're about ready to pop a vein in their neck. And they're listening to Jesus. And the disciples are going, this is good. And they're astonished at what Jesus is saying. Listen to what he's saying. And they know that they're probably looking back at the Pharisees going, are you seeing this? Oh, man, they're really uptight. And he goes on. Why do you look, verse 41, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? In other words, he was calling them, you bunch of hypocrites, is what he was saying. He was indicting them at this point. No good tree, verse 43, bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. And verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? These are all indictments that are being brought up to the Pharisees and Sadducees. No wonder they hated them. And you know, Jesus was not killed because he did miracles. Jesus was killed because he claimed to be God. That's why he was killed. They could not stand that, even though Scripture clearly said that God would show up. He would be called what? Emmanuel, God with us, Father of eternity, is what he was called. And so Jesus, he's setting the stage here. He's dividing a line, and that's what God's word does. Now, I haven't quite finished this. It's just setting the table for what's going on. But Jesus, he, he is instructing his disciples. We want to make sure we are like his disciples. There's only two groups that are there, those who believe and those who do not believe. We want to make sure we are part of those who believe and we have great assurance of your faith. You have great assurance of your faith. I have great assurance of my faith because of what we do for Christ, not that it saves us. So if you're in question about that, if, if you think, I really haven't been a disciple. I really haven't been following Jesus the way he wants me to. After all, we're going to spend all of eternity with him. He wants our lives to conform to his image. 
to be willing to sacrifice like him, to be willing to endure like him. When we're going through the desert, the trials, and we need a mountain move, he's able to do it. And for that, we can rejoice. But if you're still in doubt and you go, well, I, I don't even know if I'm saved at this point. Well, just confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. It is at that point the Holy Spirit comes in us and he leads us into discipleship and ultimately into the kingdom. That is my prayer for you. That you are not only saved, but you listen to the voice of God from his Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us. And you will be blessed. Blessed are you who follow Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. There's so much here. Help us to retain it all as we're going through that we might not forget what you have taught and how we're to be as citizens of your kingdom. Father, we also thank you for your mercy and grace towards us. You do not condemn us, but you love us. And Jesus died for us. We understand that, Father. But help us draw near to you. For your word says, if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.